before i read this i never knew my grandfather but they lived in rural quebec in a country school and country church but he they had a farm we have a hill and higher than the mountain <laughs> but they could see all the hills and mountains of vermont and, and quebec and that was his favorite song because he could look up at the hills he said and not that so i never knew him he died before i was born so i just want to tell that it's a good memory <laughs> Could we, um, Revelations 3, 7 to 13, page 1916. To the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the kings of David. What he opens no, what he opens no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an important door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept me my word, and have not denied my own my name. I will make those who are of this, the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be, to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet in the knowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who love on the earth, live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new home. He who has been here, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I had a friend in a, a previous church who, uh, who uh, was the owner and, and uh, kind of director of a, a multinational corporation. And he talked about uh, come to Jesus moments. And those were the moments where he was going to enter into a tough negotiating uh, situation and he would pull out his, his really expensive suit, the most expensive suit from his closet, the three-piece type suit, and uh, he'd get all the little bling that goes on it and he'd put on extra rings on those days uh, to kind of show the importance that he had and take kind of the, the weight of his position in the company into that meeting. And, and with that came all of this sense of intimidation and power. He had control in the room and he wanted everyone to know it. And he said, those were the come to Jesus moments. In fact, he had one suit that he called my come to Jesus suit. Jesus, in this letter to the, rev to the churches, he, he has those moments. In fact, if you read in chapter 1, you see this description of Jesus where, where it talks about 
things that are blazing and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and, and Jesus is kind of glowing and holy. He's got that power and the authority of the ascended, risen Christ standing at the throne of the Father and you see all his majesty. And in six of the seven letters that he writes to the churches, he refers back to part of that description. That big, powerful, I am here and I am in charge type image. But in the letter to Philadelphia, he doesn't. He uses other language. I'm the one who is holy and true. I'm the one who holds the key of David. He takes a, a gentler posture. A posture as he comes alongside them that, that spills out into language throughout the letter that's, that's more shepherd-like. I'm going to be the one who keeps you. I'm the one who opens the gate. I'm the one who opens the door. And, and once I've opened that, no one can shut it. He's taking the role with Philadelphia of a gentle shepherd. And so we need to switch gears in our minds from these other letters that we've been going through which, which have this powerful confrontation and, and a naming of sin and brokenness in our lives to hear clearly in this letter a calm gentleness. Jesus coming alongside a people who are weary and broken and tired and gently saying to them, I've got you. So as we enter this, we're going to hear a different cadence this morning. This letter to the church in Philadelphia, if I had to describe it in one sentence, would be, this is Jesus' affection for a people who are enduring ongoing hardship. And the church of Philadelphia really was a city that had many times experienced ongoing hardship. There's very little records of the city before A.D. 17, and I'll, I'll come back to that date and why that date's important. But what we do know before that is, is kind of legendary. There were two brothers, one who was in charge of the city and one who was uh, kind of second in command. And the Roman government kept trying to bribe the second brother to overthrow his older brother to get rid of him and said, we'll put you in charge if you just align yourself with us. And there's, there's multiple stories around this transaction. And, and some people suspect that the city got its name Philadelphia, brotherly love, from the affection of, his, of the younger brother who refused to betray his older brother. It was caught between empires. They were an empire on one side and they had the Roman Empire on the other trying to gain control of the city by whatever means necessary. More than that, it's a city that was fairly close to volcanic activity. In fact, uh, it had a, a long field just north of it that's known as a volcanic field and the ground there was incredibly great for growing wine. So the city grew a lot of wine. Some of you are going, hey, i got to go check that city out. It really was a, a fertile place for, for the vineyards. But because of the volcanic activity that had been there, the ground was extremely poor for wheat. You may go, why is that important? Well, in an agricultural society, you need to be able to grow wheat to feed your own people. And there was not enough 
fertile land for growing wheat to feed the people of that city. So they were always dependent on trade and on people outside of them. And so if a famine hit, which does hit a number of times in that, that area of Asia, they became extremely dependent upon the whims of the market. And so their city would often go into states of poverty where they had to borrow extremely from other, uh, other cities and other governments in order to keep their people alive. So they begin early on because of these cycles of famine and the inability to sustain themselves to be a city that seemed to always be in trouble. Kind of like people view Detroit these days. It's a city that just, it, it tries and starts and starts and there's good things happening in Detroit now, but it's gained that reputation of, of always somehow being in trouble. And Philadelphia had that, not just for a little bit, but for centuries. On top of that, it was the closest of the seven cities in this letter to the earthquake that happened in A.D. 17. There was a massive earthquake in that area, and it's documented in, in all sorts of historical records. But uh, the city of, of, of Smyrna that we've talked about was impacted by it. Um, some of the other cities we've talked about had, had buildings crumble. However, Philadelphia, because it was so close to the epicenter, not only endured the initial earthquake, it also felt many of the afterquakes. And, and all those aftershocks that came through, and they believe they came through for more than five years, that, er, that area had multiple earthquakes. That city was never able to really rebuild. And so we have documents already in AD 20 and 25 in that area talking about how the city itself is almost abandoned and people are just living in the countryside. They're afraid to be near any building that can fall down on them. And there's, there's a lot of grief because of the many lives that were lost when those buildings collapsed in the earthquake. One of the other things that happens here is because of its continual poverty, the emperors see an opportunity to give gifts to this city to make themselves look good. And so there are multiple occasions, whether it's after the earthquake, which happened, and they said, you don't have to pay your taxes for five years. Pretty generous offer for a city in that time. But you'll need to build a temple to me. And so there was kind of this, we're going to give you this, but it comes at a price. And, and multiple times throughout their history that happened, so much so that the gifts that were given in, in aid actually never helped the people. They only built up a sense of obligation to the Roman government more and more and more. And so they, they came around to a series of gifts that happened in the late 90s, um, around the time this letter is being written where the people essentially said, yeah, it's empty words and empty gifts. It doesn't actually help us. There was a cynicism that entered into this city. So we have a city and we have a letter being written to a people who at least for 70 years now, the letter's coming to them in, in around A.D. 90, and at least since A.D. 17, they've been trapped in cycles of poverty which means more than one generation has dealt with this poverty, and cycles where the Roman government is trying to give token gifts to them to make themselves look good, yet not really helping the people. And they're still afraid at this point in AD 90 to build any buildings that are permanent in nature because of the threat of earthquakes in that area. It's a city that has endured a lot. 
you hear one line in this letter that's really powerful. Jesus is saying to them, because you have endured patiently or patiently endured, depending on which translation you're reading, it, it talks about this ongoing patience of the people, this ongoing endurance. And, and it's really, really important for us to pay attention to this letter because so many times people paint Christianity as a, as a way to to kind of get your life together and have all sorts of good things. In fact, we have a phrase we often use about the gospel, especially in North America these days, but also it comes up in Africa and it comes up in Southeast Asia of, of the prosperity gospel or a health and wealth gospel. We have a sense where people take little snippets of verses out of Scripture and they say, see, if you just pray, God will bless you. If you just give to the offering plate, God's going to pour out riches upon you. If you just send us a check, you'll be okay and your health will be okay forever. And it's, it's a very deceptive gospel. It's a gospel that can't endure hardship. It's a gospel that can't endure the brokenness of life. It can't even figure out the sin in our own lives when we get entangled in sin and we can't seem to escape that sin this gospel of prosperity becomes a gospel of judgment and condemnation. Well, my faith just must not be strong enough. My faith must not be good enough. I must be weak in my faith. I must not have any real faith. If God would bless me, if I just prayed the right prayer, and people are often, their faith is undermined by this gospel of prosperity or this health and wealth gospel, one that's present in our day and age. And that's, part of what Philadelphia is experiencing. They must have done something wrong to deserve all this judgment. They must have done something wrong along the way. They must not be pleasing to God or pleasing enough to God to, to have him intervene because he's let them endure this struggle for so long. And Jesus is coming alongside them in this letter and tenderly speaking to them. But I want us to be able to hear that tenderness by taking a moment to acknowledge that we too have struggles. And there's multiple ways throughout Scripture that Scripture just doesn't speak about the good times or those mountaintop experiences with God when everything seems right and good and feels good, but it also speaks to us when we're caught up in that brokenness where God seems distant and absent. So I'm going to talk about, I think we have five ways in here. There's a, a whole lot more that Scripture actually talks about endurance or, or this call to persevere where scripture acknowledges our distance from God or at least that experience of us feeling distant from God. Psalm 13 it goes on longer than this but, but these first couple verses give us the feel for it. How long Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I mean, we don't often pray that prayer, do we? At least not publicly. I mean, some of us may pray it at home, but when we come here on Sunday morning, we like to have ourselves in some decent clothes and our face cleaned up and washed and everything looking like everything's fine and okay. But Scripture, if we listen to it carefully, this is quite often the reality for us. 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. 
150 psalms, 40% of those are people crying out saying, God, where are you? How long? You've forgotten us, God. When are you going to remember us? And if we're going to enter into an authentic faith with the people of Philadelphia, we need to hear that this is their cry, but also recognize that it's our cry, and it's a cry that's pervasive throughout our world. It comes at these times when God seems slow in keeping his promises. When we live in an instantaneous culture, we go to Burger King to have it our own way, right? We, we expect that we can hop on the internet and find out any information we want just very quickly. Some of us get frustrated with Siri when Siri doesn't respond the way we want. I don't know what you're talking about. She actually says that sometimes. And, and we want things instantaneously. We want them now. But, but pay attention to some of the people in Scripture that we think highly of. Abraham. The first time in Scripture that Abraham has the promise that God will make him and his descendants into a great nation, he is 75 years old. When he turns 90, when he turns 90 years old, are there any 90-year-olds here this morning? When he we have a few 90-year-olds in our congregation. That's why I'm asking. We, when he turns 90, God comes back to him and says, I am still going to bless you with a son. How many of you want to laugh at that thought? God, you gave me that promise 15 years ago. It was impossible then. Now, are you kidding me? Not only that, God waits another 10 years before giving him Isaac. He's waited from the time he's 75 until the time he's 100 to receive that child of promise. And along the way, he, he denies that his wife Sarah is actually his wife. He says, she's my sister, trying to avoid trouble with foreign governments. He decides with his wife, hey, God's kind of slow in keeping his promises. I'm going to have sex with your maid and we're going to make this happen and maybe Ishmael will be the child of promise. He goes all over the place wavering in his faith. He struggles to believe because God is slow in keeping his promises and yet Abraham becomes the person who is known as God's friend who, whose faith in God is credited to him as righteousness. But we need to hear the whole story that this man also had a long time of waiting. And sometimes our waiting and this waiting for God to keep promises when he's slow, it is hard on us. It's hard on the city of Philadelphia waiting, God, when will you deliver us? The Exodus. Remember all those wonderful promises Moses made to the people of Israel while they were in Egypt. God's going to deliver us. Ha! From Pharaoh? And then God actually does. And you know what? It takes less than three days before the people of Israel are out in the desert saying, God hasn't delivered us yet. Let us go back to slavery in Egypt. And in fact, multiple times in that first year, we have record of them saying, just bring us back to slavery because God is too slow in keeping his promises. We don't know where God is at. It was the first year. It took 40 years before they reached that land that was flowing with milk and honey. 
that land of promise. And then once they reached it, they had to fight a few wars before they could settle in it and begin reaping the benefits of that land and the promised land. God was slow in keeping his promises as they understood that to be. They wanted God to deliver them now, and he took his time. Or Babylon, people go into exile, and we have, we have a verse we love to quote today. I bet you many of you have had it on your fridge or a little card. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a great verse, but what we fail to do is read the two verses before that which tell the people that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years, which means most of them who are hearing that promise will be dead by the time that the promise is fulfilled. The promise is being given actually to the little kids in the community and to their kids that one day they will see God's faithfulness even though they're going to endure hardship and be in a place where they feel like God has abandoned them for 70 years. And then Anna. Anna, we hear in Luke 2, was married for seven years and then became a widow. And, and there's some debate about the year, the, the language there, but but realistically, she was a widow waiting in the temple for 84 years to see Jesus. She was an old woman who daily came to the temple. She was considered a prophet among the people and daily would go to the temple waiting to see Jesus. Can you imagine that? All your hopes built up in this marriage and in this life that you're going to have and after seven years your husband dies and you become a widow and now what? And you have this promise from God and this word from God that you will see Jesus. And for 84 years, you go to the temple waiting to see Jesus. Sometimes the road gets hard and weary because we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And he seems to be taking an awfully long time. Other times we hear scripture, and it's in one of the passages we read earlier, Psalm 42, where we don't feel God's presence. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Circumstances of life feel so heavy and so overwhelming that, that we have a hard time imagining that God is still with us. We wonder where he's gone and we feel that, that emptiness inside of us. God, won't you deliver me? God, won't you show up? God, I just need one word from you. I just need you to say something to me. And we sit in the silence. When we are suffering, another passage we remember, or we read earlier, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A little while later, Paul adds to this. He's building a whole argument here. And a little while later, he says, all of creation's actually groaning. And in fact, we are groaning inside and our bodies are wasting away. Though we have hope and, and though we know we're trying to persevere and we are experiencing suffering and it hurts and we groan. 
We groan under the weight of it. We weren't meant to carry this weight. And yet it's part of our reality. And Paul's acknowledging it. Even as he says we have hope and God's poured his love upon us, we still groan. We still feel the weight of the brokenness in the world of things that are not the way they should be. When we are weary, I don't know how many times I've seen this as a graduation verse from high school. People get to pick those verses that they read as people walk across the stage, and, and this one's up there every year. And I, part of me takes a little patronizing, oh, you know so little. <laughs> but the reality is all of us know so little, and this was written to immature people, the people of Israel, and, and they need to be reminded. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That last little part is actually a Hebraic way of arguing. And the argument builds the further you get into the verse. And so that the, the entry level is, uh, they'll soar on wings like eagle. Man, it's easy to have spiritual highs. It's a little bit long, harder to have that endurance that you get when you run. But really, the culmination of that text is that God's going to give us the strength to walk, to be faithful in that day-in, day-out, mundane walking. But that's hard. And twice in this passage, it mentions becoming weary and that desire not to become weary. Paul picks up on it later to the Galatians and says, do not become weary. And it pops up in multiple other places. Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden. Sometimes we are just worn out by the walking, the faithful endurance, the day in, the day out. Greg even mentioned it. Even the joy he has, he says there are times going to work, you wake up and you're feel the weariness in your body. You feel it in your spirit. How do we persevere when the road has become weary in its mundane ordinariness and facing trials? I suppose there's lots of passages I could have picked up on this word trials or tribulation. They, they come up all through scripture, but, but this one perhaps is the most important for us to pay attention to. It's Jesus. Jesus experiencing the heaviness. Jesus experiencing what, uh, anticipating what he'll experience on the cross in a few moments where, where he's going to cry out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the garden as he's anticipating that trial, he's saying, Abba, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Take this suffering away from me. Don't make me go through this trial. He's familiar with all our ways, including that feeling and that experience that God has somehow abandoned us. That somehow life is not the way it's supposed to be. That somehow we are broken and hurting and God has chosen not to intervene. And Jesus entered into that. Not just into the good times, but into our suffering when the things don't make sense, when, when our kids are hurting, when our siblings are hurting, when our neighbors are hurting, when our bodies are rebelling against us. And Jesus entered into the midst of that and said, yeah, that's my suffering too. I'll take it on. 
And he went to the cross on our behalf and, and entered into the, the worst the world has to offer, death. Taking on all our sins and all the brokenness and all the consequences with it, including that separation from God and saying, I've got you. I'll go here with you too. I'll go into the depths of your pain and your struggle and those places where you feel completely abandoned by God. I will go there too because I love you. And what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia and to us, I know your pain. I know you have little strength left. I know you are struggling, but I've got you. There's a whole bunch of promises here that Jesus gives to this church. They come up throughout the passage. He doesn't wait till the end to start the promises. He starts them at the beginning. He's created an open door that no one can shut. One of the challenges in that city post-earthquake was the officials were deciding who could come in and who could come out of the city. And the emperor, with all his temples there, was deciding who was worthy enough to enter in and who wasn't worthy enough. And Jesus saying, I have paid the price so that you can enter in. I will have a temple and a kingdom that you are permitted to be in because I've opened that door and no one's going to close it on you. Your enemies will acknowledge that I have loved you. Perhaps one of the common refrains that comes up in the Psalms as the Psalms are expressing all this grief is, Lord, my enemies are taunting me and when they taunt me, they're taunting you. They're, they're taunting me saying, where is my God? They're taunting me saying, your God's abandoned you. And Jesus is saying, your enemies, the ones who are most opposed to you, will one day acknowledge that I have loved you they're the ones looking around and saying, look at the circumstances of your life. There's no God. Where is God? And Jesus is saying, in the end, even your enemies will say, oh, he was with them all the time. He didn't leave them. He has loved them, even when it looked like he wasn't. He was carrying them. He was with them. He loved them all the way through, even when they couldn't see it and we couldn't see it. He's always loved them. And then this verse, it's the only time in, in the, this section, in these letters, where the word trial doesn't refer to something contemporary, but it refers to the end when there's a trial and tribulation where it seems like everything's falling apart, the whole world seems to be literally going to hell in a handbasket. And Jesus is saying, you've suffered. And there's suffering I will spare you from. I will protect you. And more than that, he says to them this bold statement, I am coming soon. I'm near to you. I'm, I'm almost at hand. The suffering you're experiencing will have an end to it. This isn't going to be your whole story. Your whole life is not going to be this suffering. There is more to you and more to the plans I have for you than the brokenness you are now experiencing. Take hope. I'm coming soon. I am going to make everything new. And this phrase, I am coming soon, actually gets picked up in the later chapters of Revelation where Jesus reminds the people again and again, I am coming soon. The brokenness of this world, the tears and death and sorrow, it will come to an end. I am still in control. Take hope. Hear me. In the midst of your suffering, 
the suffering is not the end of the story. And then this. Hear this promise in the context of a city that's constantly ravaged by earthquakes, where pillars fall down. I am going to make you a pillar. You are going to be strong. You're going to be sturdy. You have endured. And you're going to be so strong, you're going to be a pillar in my temple. Something that's going to endure forever. You're going to have a place that won't be threatened by earthquakes anymore. That won't be threatened to fall down. You're going to have a place of security. You're going to be part of the fabric of my new kingdom. And more than that, I'm going to put my favor and blessing on you. You know that blessing I say at the end of the service quite often here? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Right after God gave those words to Moses and Aaron as a blessing for the people, he says, in this way I will put my name on my people. I will give them my name. They'll be part of my family. They will belong to me. Anyways, what we just said to Jonas is God's put his name on you. He's claimed you as his own. He's, he's brought you into his family. He's identifying you with him and himself with you. And he's saying, you are mine. You're never going to be outside of my family again. I'm giving you this gift, not like the Roman emperors give gifts. But I'm giving you this gift because it's cost me a high price, not you. My son has died and has risen again in order for my name to be put on you. And just as we watched that water go on Jonas this morning, God's given us that reminder this morning that his name has been put on us as well, that we belong to him, and that even in the midst of our suffering, he will never forsake us. He will never leave us. He will never reject us because he's already paid the cost for us. More than that, they're going to have citizenship in the, new citizen, in the new Jerusalem. We get to be God's people in his new kingdom. A citizenship that's not controlled by a foreign government who taxes us to say, if you really want to be our people, pay up. But a citizenship that's been made secure where God has paid the price. And even more than that, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my name. You're going to be known as one of my disciples, one of my people with me. It's a gentle shepherd picking up his people saying, I've got you. I've got you so close that, that people are going to look at you and see me. They're, they're going to associate you with me and, and I'm going to hold you. I'm never going to let you go. It's a gentle word God gives us today. No matter our circumstances, no matter the, the threats and fears we are facing, no matter the uncertainty we are experiencing, the anxiety in our own bodies, in our own minds, God is saying to us in Jesus Christ, I hold you. I'm holding you close. Don't give up hope. Sometimes we need to experience that. We need to experience living into that. And it's a simple command. In the other text, Jesus tells the other churches, get up, get to work. And there are times we need to do that, but we also need to hear that in this context. A simple hold on. Hold on what do you have. 
Don't try and fix everything. Don't get up and try and do it on your own. Just hold on to the fact that I'm holding on to you. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. To stand with Christ in his grace. To be caught up with him. It's hard work just standing. And we need each other. Scripture says multiple times to carry each other's burdens. In this way, we fill, fulfill the law of Christ. And this is how we do it. And, and part of that is being wrapped into community. And we're going to share a meal with each other, and that's part of it. Part of it is through the offerings we give. And we're going to give to the Benevolence Fund today, a way our, our deacons take the resources of this church and walk alongside other people who are hurting and struggling and suffering. And we do it in this community through supporting CAP. And, and we come alongside those who are trapped in poverty and debt, similar to that church in Philadelphia. And we work to set people free from that. We carry each other's burdens. We walk with each other. But I also need to mention the other resource that's up there. One of the ways our church comes alongside people who are struggling is to say, if you are struggling and you need access to a counselor, if you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with suicidal ideation, if you're struggling with anxiety, there are resources available and our church makes them available for those who are struggling for free. We pay a fee every year to Shalem so that people from this congregation can access those resources. Those numbers are up there, the contact's up there. I'm going to leave this up there for a minute. Uh, Colin, can we put this slide back up at the end of the service after everything's done? So we'll leave it up while people leave the sanctuary. So if you want to come back in and write the info down, feel free. We want to make sure that everyone hears that just as Jesus came alongside us, we as a community are coming alongside every one of us who's struggling. We are not alone. We're not alone because God came in Jesus Christ. And we're not alone because he's given us the gift of being the body of Christ together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word in scripture is not just those big hard words that call us to action, but it's also these gentle words that can speak truth and acknowledge pain and suffering and brokenness and, and our inability to understand. When we're going through those Job-like moments where we wonder where you are, where we're waiting for you to fulfill your promises and the road gets long and hard, where the trials come home, the rest in our houses and in our families and in our own bodies. Lord, thank you for this gentle word that can name those realities and yet say to us, I've got you. Help us to believe. Help us to overcome our unbelief when it seems like you are far away. Draw near to us, Lord, and wrap us again in your grace in Jesus Christ that we might know that you never let us go, that you never forsake us. And give us, Lord, the courage to ask others for help, to speak up. Give us courage to walk alongside those and reach out to those we see struggling that we together might embody your love and your grace and your presence. 
Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Invite us.